Publishing for Profit podcast is brought to you by Ghostwriters and Co. Earn more money by publishing better content and learn how to increase your thought leadership so you can build your brand. Head over to ghostwritersandco.com for more information. That's ghostwritersandco.com. And now, your host, Joel Mark Harris. Hello, and welcome to the Publishing for Profit podcast. This is your host, Joel Mark Harris. Today, we are interviewing Maggie Langret, who is the founder and CEO of Wonderwell. Wonderwell is a hybrid book publisher, uh, and Maggie is such a wonderful wealth of knowledge of all things book publishing. She gives so much great information in this podcast about what to think about when you're looking at selling a book, uh, which is obviously one, if not the most important part of the whole book publishing process. Um, So I know you'll enjoy this interview. I highly, highly recommend that you take notes if you're thinking about writing a book or you're midway through uh, the process, uh, listen to this podcast, take notes, and you'll gain so much valuable insight. So without further ado, here is Maggie. Hi, Maggie. Welcome to the show. How are you? I'm doing really well, Joel. Thank you so much for having me. You're very welcome. So I I was doing obviously some research through um, good old Google uh, before, you know, talking to you. And I know you obviously as a journalist, I know you as a writer, um, publisher, all those good things, but I didn't actually know that you started out as an actor, which, uh, and quite a successful one too. So um, how, yeah, I'm just very curious about how you got into acting and what you learned from that experience. Oh, yeah, sure. I'd be happy to share about that. So I, I got into acting kind of by happenstance, as is the case for most of the you know, biggest and most important best events of my life. I was living across the street in Vancouver, Canada, from a, uh, an indie filmmaker named Sandy Wilson. And this was back when I was a child. I think we lived there when I was eight or nine years old. And Sandy wanted to make a movie about her life, a certain period in her life with kind of a coming of age story. And she cast me in the role uh, to play her. Um, the movie was called My American Cousin. And um, it was uh, a big hit by Western Canadian standards in the mid eighties. <laughs> and, and happily it's still, you know, is I think seen as a, a Canadian classic, which is just such an honor. I then went on to have a, a career for about, I don't know, 11 years or so. I spent um, the next decade or so acting until I was in my early to mid twenties. And then I dropped out to become a mom. And then you um, went into journalism and you uh, wrote for the Vancouver Sun, which is, again, our local paper here. Like, was writing always a something that you loved and you wanted to get into? Or was, again, it was it sort of like just happenstance? A bit of both. So I think when I was a child, I used to say that my my uh, my professional goals when I was a kid were I wanted to either be um, a writer or a psychologist um, and, uh, and well, after having a conversation with my father and learning 
that what a philosopher was I for five minutes I decided I wanted to be a professional philosopher because their their job is just to think about why things are the way they are and I thought oh my god that's a thing I want to do that well writing's not dissimilar to that yeah, I think exactly. mm -hmm. and I think you know uh, psych psychology too you know really understanding um, yeah, so I kind of wanted to be a writer, a teacher, and a psychologist as a child. And what I have now in my work as a publisher is sort of I use a blend of all those things. Um, anyway, actually, so at the Vancouver Sun, I wasn't a reporter. I was an editor there. Um, and uh, and I worked on the news side as, uh, as a copy editor um, for a while and then eventually became the uh, the features editor, so was in uh, in charge of the arts and life department. Um, so working with a lot of nonfiction, you know, what would be looked at in a short format nonfiction content, really, mm -hmm. uh, that is sort of lifestyle focused. And how did you how did you like working for as a like I guess yeah as um, an editor and for the Vancouver Sun? Well, I've always really loved being an editor. I, I do write myself, of course. Um, but there's something about uh, the way that my brain works, which is, you know, I'm, I'm, um, I have a, a pattern finding mind um, and uh, a kind of a, a big picture, um, big picture ability to see the big picture in a piece of writing. So um, it's easy and fun for me to work with somebody else's material. Um, I like to describe it as editing into the void where, you know, you can kind of see what isn't being said but needs to or you know that also obviously involves um uh reshaping and trimming what's actually on the page but i think that the one of the one of the most important jobs for an editor is to is to be able to kind of bring understand and intuit what the writer or author is trying to say and bring that to the surface so i learned a lot while i was in my role at the vancouver sun um about editing for sure you know i was editing the work of our reporters but also um, I was assigning uh, stories, which meant really being able to, especially on the feature side, it really means being able to think like a reader and understand what people are interested in and how to kind of present material in a novel and engaging way. But the other thing that I really learned in that role was um, management and how, how to be a manager of people as well as projects and processes. So it was a really invaluable experience for me. Mm. And then can you talk a little bit about your transition to starting your own company from being an editor? Sure. Uh, so that was, I think, um, boy, that was, it was just such an exciting time. Um, what happened was that the newspaper, the newsroom was downsizing, as we've seen in a lot of metropolitan newspapers around the world. Um, and each time they would come around and cut our staff, um, it became a little harder to do our jobs as well as we wanted. And uh, frankly, it was getting kind of demoralizing. And then, you know, eventually after I'd, I'd been there for, I guess in that role for five or six years and, um, and uh, I, I realized it was time for me to go when they offered a round of staff buyouts. Um, and um, meanwhile, I had been, uh, as I say, working on this sort of lifestyle content for the newspaper, feature content. Um, I really, really love that, you know, kind of food, uh, parenting columns, um, you know, things that look at trends in society and why we are the way we are and how we live. Um, and I really, really love um, all of that, uh, all that subject matter that reflects back to us how we as humans experience the world and how we might be able to be more effective or, or get more um, enjoyment out of life. Um, at the same time, I had 
a few friends in my orbit who were publishing books. They were looking at their options and trying to decide whether to self-publish or, you know, try to get a traditional publisher involved. And if so, what is the process? How long does it take? Gosh, there seem to be so many steps. Do I need an agent? What is a book proposal anyway? Should I write the manuscript first? And there were all these, you know, all these questions that they had. And, um, and this one friend in particular, um, she, so she had her manuscript ready. She was, um, and she was about to self-publish it because she did not want to go through the rigmarole of, you know, kind of jumping through all the traditional hoops. And she understood that um, winning a traditional contract is getting harder and harder and harder as publishers, um, due to economic forces, just become more risk averse. And there's a lot of consolidation going on in the publishing landscape. So she was looking at self-publishing, but she was frustrated because she said, well, I really, I want my book to be in stores. I'm taking this book really seriously. I want it to, you know, I want it to be available everywhere um, and not just online. Um, but I also really like, you know, the, the control and ownership of self-publishing. So I wish I could have it both ways. And I was like, oh, <laughs> that's where <laughs> a kind of a light went on. And I thought there is a gap in the market. Why isn't there you know, a kind of a hybrid publishing model where um, people can uh, pay for services and um, access, you know, the expertise of a, a, a real kind of credible professional publisher who can also then get their book into stores. Why, why can't we do it that way? So naively, I set up shop thinking like, that's what I'll do. I'll just be a hybrid publisher. Um, not realizing that book distribution is like super hard to get when you have no track record and no books and nothing going on. Um, and that it's not as simple as just knocking on doors or just, you know, taking your book up there. You really need to be distributed by um, a distributor. What, uh, and we should go into briefly, I, I'd love to tell your listeners exactly what book distribution entails and why it's not as simple. Yeah, go, go ahead right now. If, but, if you want. I'll just, um, I'll, I'll just finish this little one, one little piece of the story first, which is that um, I made a connection. Well, I, I suppose I sent out an email from the Vancouver Sun saying, hey, everybody that I know in my network, I'm leaving my post and I'm setting up this thing and, um, you know, see you on the other side. And, <laughs> and I got um, an email back from Rob Sanders, who's the publisher at Greystone Books. And he said, hey, I'm really interested in what you're doing. Let's meet. Do you have distribution? And I said, um, no, no, I, I don't. I'm gonna get it though. <laughs> and anyway, Greystone Books wound up being our, basically our agency distributor for the first few years uh, for the first five or so years, actually, um, of our existence, six maybe even, <laughs> um, of our existence. And uh, basically, we piggybacked on their distribution. So we were not an imprint of Greystone. We were our own imprint, but, um, but they were our path to market. Now, here's what book distribution really is. So we think about, um, and, and this is really, really important. I'm, I want very much if you're listening to this, like pay attention now, because this is the good, the good part where you really, really need to understand this. I, I encounter people all the time who have um, a limited understanding of what book or a misunderstanding of what book distribution means. And that's partly because there are lots of people in the sort of service publishing, publishing services space that misrepresent book distribution. They'll say, oh, are you? we have worldwide distribution through POD, or we have worldwide distribution for eBooks, or, or even uh, we have, we're, you know, we're, your book is distributed 
to the retail market because it's in Ingram's catalog and any book retailer anywhere can order it. Therefore, it's distributed. It's distributed. And that is not what distribution means. So distribution is a complex and very um, uh, infrastructure heavy set of um, uh, supply chain activities. And so it encompasses uh, warehousing and um, and shipping of materials, you know, books out to retailers and processing of returns. But primarily, what book distribution really is is a sales function. So a book distributor. We have a third party book distributor. Um, most small to medium sized presses do, and the big houses have their distribution function in house. What book distribution really means is a sales force. Um, so what that means is that uh, you know we we must maintain a steady flow of titles each season in order to you know put that product through our distributors um, uh, business. Each season, I give a presentation to the, they have a fleet of sales reps um, across the country, and every publisher that they distribute um, uh, goes into these sales conference meetings and presents. You know, I'll say here are the books that we have coming on our list. The sales reps listen to my spiel. Um, they sometimes give us feedback on the cover or the title or um, the positioning of the book somehow. Um, and they might even have feedback on the format or the pricing, any, any you know, because these are the people that are on the front, front line. So I give the spiel on what the book is and um, everything I know about it to kind of educate them to go and sell it. And then they take what they have heard from all their publishers and each sales rep is assigned you know, a, a territory, a, 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 part, a part of the market, whether that's like there's one person for Barnes & Noble, there's one person for Amazon. And then there are regional sales reps, there are field reps, which go out to, um, you know, kind of mom and pop bookstores, but also libraries, also big box retailers, also specialty stores like sporting goods stores or museums or really literally anywhere that books are sold, airport stores, grocery stores, those books come there through a distributor and it is the distributor's prime primary role is to sell them <laughs> so here's what we've got coming how many do you want and taking orders fulfilling them also processing returns so the management of physical inventory is only part of it but that is part of this this much 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 larger um cyclical um flow of activity and that is mm -hmm. what distribution is. That is why it's impossible really for one author with one book to get into bookstores across the country or around the world. And, you know, the, the, most bookstores, I mean, you might be able to persuade your local bookseller to take a few copies from you and put it on their shelf. But most bookstores, they buy through their distributor because that's just part of their, their operational processes. That's how they do it and how their all of their systems are set up. So if you if you don't have distribution and you're not prepared to go knocking on the door, I mean, many of them won't even take the call of an individual because that's just far too taxing on their time. So anyway, that's what this book distribution is. Do uh, bookstores, because it used to be the case that bookstores, they looked at self-publishing or even hybrid publishing as like this negative, it has like this negative connotation. Is that still the case or, or if you go through these channels, is it pretty much as you would like a traditional, like a big five publisher? 
So we've never found there to be any distinction for us. As a, as a hybrid publisher, we are distributed by our distributor Salesforce and we're presented along with the others. And I'm, I'm not even sure if the stores are aware of the distinction or you know the type of publisher that we are. What they know is that that this product is being professionally produced and it's being um, it's 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 being made available you know in physical format. Um, and so they stock it and sell it and every single one of our books goes into stores um, that is in our hybrid program. I think that I happen to know a little bit about this because I'm also on the board at the Independent Book Publishers Association, the IBPA. Um, and so I hear from members of our community all the time, and including booksellers. And what I hear from them is that uh, there are there are some, you know, especially indie bookstores who are keen to support indie authors and, you know, it's not so much about um, having a beef against self-published authors. The issue is one of quality. And when you know books come to them that are not professionally developed, and they they really they are just tells there are they you know things about the you know the formatting or the um, the the physical manufacturing quality or the editing quality or the content quality or the writing quality, all those things that may give the book away as an amateur effort and a non-professional product. Um, and so nobody wants to stock those books in their stores because they will not sell. Um, and then the other barrier is simply, they don't have time for their staff to be like making a deal with one author with one book. Like I said, they, they're purchasing through distributors. Um, I think that, you know, as part of the IBPA's real mission is to, um, well, twofold, to, um, democratize the industry so that self-publishing authors who are publishing to a professional standard might have the same access to market as other forms of publishers do. Um, and the other part is education. IBPA cares a lot about educating its publisher members, including author publishers. Um, and so there are lots of educational tools, including a checklist that any member can download I think you might even be able to download it if you're not a member, a checklist for a professionally published book, which will help you to adhere at least to industry norms. They won't help you with your character or plot development, but at least it would tell you what should go on the copyright page and, uh, you know, how to format the interior. So any of anyone who's listening to this, if you are um, thinking of self-publishing your book, I really, really encourage you to become a member at IBPA. Um, they have a tremendous community and a tremendous set of tools available for um, for members to help them um, to keep those those standards high. So you mentioned well, we've been talking about hybrid publishing, and you know we talked about digital rights and you know uh, foreign distribution, and you know that can get very complicated. So, what is um, hybrid publishing, and what should somebody look out for when they're thinking about publishing a book? Um, okay, so two those are two different questions. But uh, <laughs> what is a, what is a hybrid publisher? A hybrid publisher. Um, essentially does everything that a traditional publisher does, but on a different business model, on a fee-for-service model, which is author, author subsidized or, or wholly author financed. I was actually um, part of the working group um, that was made of, um, um, it was a mixed group of traditional publishers, hybrid publishers and self-publishing authors at IBPA. It was part of that group that developed um, their um, 
list of criteria for a bona fide hybrid publisher. So if you're if you're looking for a hybrid publisher or you're thinking of setting up shop as a hybrid publisher yourself, you should really check out that criteria list and see that it adheres, um, that the firm adheres to those, um, those, those criteria. Um, essentially, here's how I'll explain it, Joel. Um, I just gave a talk about this last week at their conference. I, I think that a publisher, any publisher of any sort has two main responsibilities. And there is a third, which some would argue is part of the defining criteria, and I would argue is not. So let me talk to you first about the two, which I think any publisher must do in order to be a publisher. We turn words into books and get those books to market um, in, the, in the best and most thorough way possible. So turning words into books that, I mean, that even can be ideas. What that basically means is, you know, the words are the raw material, the, the ephemeral, thought content, or maybe it's digital in a document, um, and actually productize that and turn that into a thing that can be sold, which is either a physical or a digital book that people can buy. Um, so that's job number one. And that's true whether you are a hybrid publisher, self-publishing author, or a traditional publisher. Job number two is to bring that book to market. If you, if you are a traditional publisher or a hybrid publisher, you're able to do that digitally and in stores. And so you are fully participating in the market. You are everywhere that books can be bought and sold and you are playing the, the you know, the A-League game. I, <laughs> I can't do sports metaphors. I don't know if that's a thing. Anyway, you're, you're in the real- I get what you're talking you're about. You're in no the real field, right? You're, you're yeah. in the real arena where all the most important action is happening. Um, if you're a self-publishing author, you're really only limited to online only sales through um, digital platforms, or of course, direct sales that you can make yourself physically through your office or shop or you know speaking events or whatever. Um, the third thing that some people would argue is also the job of a publisher is to invest resources into the development and manufacturing of that product. And I disagree. The reason that I disagree is that there are all kinds of traditional publishers out there who, yes, they're ostensibly their business is investing in the creation of their own product and then taking that product to market. Um, but they there are many, many, many uh, traditional publishers who have a brisk, you know, line of business in um, author subsidized deals, you know, whereby the author um, is required to buy back a minimum number of copies. So, you know, it could be, and they typically sell those copies to the authors at wholesale price. So the same price that they would sell to a store, which is usually 50% of what the consumer will pay. So, you know, in some cases, an author might be buying required to buy 5,000 units at 10 bucks a pop, they're making a $50,000 investment. They're essentially covering all of the publisher's costs of development and manufacturing, but they're still only making a 10% royalty. And I have an issue with that. I think that as with movies and you know, yogurt, any kind of product, you know, the, the person who's writing the check to bankroll the creation of the product is almost always the person who stands to profit the most from its sale. You know, it's like, okay, you brought the know-how to make it happen. You brought the intellectual, you know, raw material and in, in the form of the words, um, you, know, you other person are taking it to market, but I'm writing the check to make it happen. And so I get the big payday. And in the traditional model, the traditional publisher 
performs all three of those duties. Um, they turn the author's words into a book. They take that book to market. And because they are the investor, they also are the primary profit, you know, profit maker. Uh, in our model, that profit, that investor and profit maker role is the, uh, it rests with the author. And that's the only difference between hybrid and traditional. Wow, that's a lot of information. And that's fantastic. <laughs> so thank you so much for sharing. Does it make sense? I know I have it a does. lot. It does. Yeah. No, it does. It totally I'm does. To get, you know, it's a complex thing. And I'm, every time I describe it, I'm trying to get kind of clearer and clearer about it. But that is, you know, in a, in a huge nutshell, what it is. <laughs> I want to play devil's advocate for a bit here. And is it still, because I know up here in Canada, um, like the main book retailer chapters they're selling less and less books. They're more candles, blankets. And I haven't been in Barnes and Nobles for a while, but I'm assuming that's sort of the general trend down there. Is it important to get into those stores anymore? I think it depends on what your goals are. And first of all, let me say some things about the non-book items. Actually, so at IBPA's conference a couple of weeks ago, James Dount, who's the CEO of Barnes & Noble, he was also he is also the CEO at Waterstones in the UK, and he recently was brought on board at Barnes & Noble. He was talking about um, the non-book content in the store, and he is really leading Barnes & Noble um, into a book-first future and also a locally curated future where they're empowering the individual store managers to merchandise their stores. Um, he said that he thinks anytime you're getting anywhere close to like 20% of your merchandise, your SKUs being non-book products, then you're in the wrong business or you're, you know, anyway. So, so, you know, first and foremost, there's that. I also happen to love the candles and blankets that they sell at chapters. I do too. I do too. I love them. I love everything at chapters actually. <laughs> Number one place to buy picture frames if I'm, yeah. if I'm in Canada. But, um, but anyway, yeah, so is it important to be in bookstores at all? And, you know, why why draw the line at Barnes & Noble and Chapters? Why not also talk about, you know, your local indie bookstore down the road? Um, why not talk about airport stores? Why not talk about all of those physical places? And I, I, think, if, I think that the answer is it depends on what your goals are and it depends on who you are and what kind of author you are, what kind of book you have. If your goal is to, you know, really be out there in a big way and create a, you know, to raise your stature as an author, not necessarily like just as a business person or a coach or an expert or whatever, but really, if you're trying to build a career as an author of books, then for sure, you have to be in stores, you just have to. Um, otherwise, you're really, you're really kind of, you um, you're on the, what, so the, I'm not gonna make another sports analogy, I was gonna say farm team, and I don't even know if that's a thing anymore. So I'm not gonna say that, but anyway, you're- um, <clears throat> you're, you're, you're in the B league. Oh, there you go, there you go. <laughs> Thanks, Joel, kill me out there, throw me a bone, man. All right, that's right. <laughs> anyway, uh, yeah, so if you have serious career aspirations for your writing, then yeah, you need to be in stores. Also, if you have a book with widespread, you know, consumer appeal, you should be in stores. Sure. Why not? You know, this is where, um, so yes, a lot of books are being discovered online, but, um, but people are still definitely browsing, um, bookstores. And in fact, um, there's been, uh, a, a real sort of renaissance for local 
bookstores that often host, you know, events and they're doing those events online sometimes too. Um, local stores can often really curate their, their merchandise for their, you know, their community, their market. People love their bookstores. They love them, you know, in a way that is more personally meaningful to them than a different type of retailer. Um, I would say it's probably, um, you know, a, a, a certainly beyond, you know, kind of fashion or home goods or, um, or even food. And I say that as a foodie who loves food boutiques. Um, but bookstores are really personally meaningful to people. So um, I, I think it's important to be in stores if that is, if you have, um, but that only really makes sense if you have a book that consumers want to read. If on the other hand, most of your target readership is made up of people who already know you and have a direct relationship to you through your email list or you know through your live events through your customer base or through a really kind of niche community of interest you know say um i, I don't even i don't even know like some really arcane topic like you know kind of coin collecting or whatever and you've written like the book on coin collecting it probably doesn't make sense for that book to be distributed widely into local bookstores across the country it probably makes more sense to sell that book um through an online channel and really market it to those passionate fans of that topic that are just you know, they're numerous but they're really dispersed <laughs> so um so I, that's what i'd say about you know the the wisdom of um of getting into bookstores. So for my listeners, viewers here um, who are thinking about writing a book, but they're not sure if it's for them, who do you think should write a book and who should not? Well, I mean, you know, there are all kinds of reasons to do it and all kinds of reasons not to do it. I don't know if there's like a really clear defining this and that. Um, I think that, and much of the answer is sort of like, if then, you know, um, so, uh, and if not this, then that, you know, um, so, and I'm going to strictly speak about nonfiction here because I, I don't work in the world of fiction and I never have, and I don't really understand its dynamics. Um, <clears throat> I think that, I, I mean, I, I will say that I think if you're, if you're an artist and you want to write some literary work, um, for your own self-expression, then you should do that regardless of, you know, and don't wait to be invited. Um, but getting back to nonfiction, which is the side that I know, um, everybody wants to write a book right now. And there are a lot of voices out there saying that anybody can be an expert, putting your name on a book automatically makes you an expert. I don't subscribe to that view. I think that there is such a thing as true expertise. There is such a thing as new and original thought and ideas that further the conversation and help people to understand things in a new way. I think that a book ought to do that. I think that a book ought to um, teach something that people don't already know or um, present um, you know, old information in a new light. Um, but that's not the only value that can be in a book. It, it can, it, its value can primarily be in the enjoyment of reading it. Um, but then not every nonfiction book has, is really high on the enjoyment factor. So it either has to be high on the information, you know, utility, practicality factor, or high on the enjoyment factor, or ideally both. Um, if you don't have a big idea at the center of your work or anything truly new or novel to say, should you write a book? The answer is maybe. 
Um, I don't think that you should try to seek a traditional publisher. I don't think you should have high expectations of, you know, great high volume of sales. Um, but a book can still be useful if it is well developed. It can still be useful to further your career, um, even if it's not distributed into stores. Um, even if you don't have, even if your material is like not super groundbreaking, but in that case, I wouldn't attempt to distribute it because it's going to sit there on the shelf next to the bestsellers in the category. I, so I have this, I have this kind of like, it's sort of, you know, it's, it's an if, like I said, it's an if then, if this, then that sort of equation. If you have um, something truly novel to say that is a value to people that people actually already want and want to know, and it has high consumer appeal, um, then you should, uh, then you should traditionally or hybrid publish um, and get your book into stores. Um, if you, if your if your material is kind of like good, but not like the best, you know, but you have a really great audience and a really, you know, solid platform and a way to reach tens or hundreds of thousands of readers, they're going to buy that book from you because they know, like, and trust you regardless of whether or not, you know, they're not going to be comparing it to somebody else's bestseller on the shelf. So in that case, you should still publish and probably either hybrid publish or self-publish um, so that you're, because you're, you're, you're kind of creating and bringing the audience with you. You don't need discoverability in bookstores in order to sell those books. So it's kind of a complex equation. Now, if you have both of those things, high consumer appeal and a really awesome platform, then, you know, the world is your oyster and you can do any or all of those routes to publishing. If you are low on both of those, you have like no platform and your ideas are just so-so or, and your writing quality is, you know, not that great. Um, then, then should you publish a book? And that's where I come to like, well, the answer is either no, don't bother because it's expensive and time consuming or yes, do it, but consider it a labor of love and invest accordingly. Awesome. Yeah, that's great information for sure. I want to switch gears a little bit um, and go back. Um, so the company that you founded, Lifetree Media, you were working under that title and then you, you rebranded essentially. Um, what was the purpose of that rebrand? Yeah, yeah, that's right. So I launched the business as Lifetree Media back in 2013, which means we're coming up on eight years, which is sort of blows my mind a little bit. Um, and uh, a couple of years ago, I moved from Vancouver to Los Angeles um, just for personal reasons. And it was part of uh, like a, a kind of a bigger career and life shift. Um, and at that time, I kind of thought, Huh, well, um, I like that I'm I like the name Life Tree that we had, and um, our our publishing focus is books that help heal and inspire. It was then, it still is now. Um, but um, for some folks, especially like in the kind of like business category or certain other areas, um, there was too too strong an association or perception of connection to like um, you know holistic wellness or, you know, natural foods or something. And, um, and I wanted something that was a little grander and more expansive and more all encompassing. And we also, you know, um, had not put the development to the name life tree through a really rigorous process. Um, so I wanted the opportunity um, to do that. So I thought like, okay, well I'm moving, which meant that I needed to set up a new corporation in the state of California. And so, because this is the way I think, I was like, well, 
oh, well, I might as well just rebrand the entire thing. I mean, you know, they sort of like make the new company have a completely new name and just migrate it because, yeah, because complex things are better when they're made more complicated. I don't know. Uh, but I, I did that and I'm glad that I did. I'm really glad that we did that. It was a lot of work. It was crazy timing. We were supposed to unveil the new brand in like March, 2020. <laughs> so um, that didn't happen as planned, um, but we did go live with it in October of 2020 and the response has just been really phenomenal. People can really, that can really sense the energy, vitality um, mission and polish of our publishing program and our brand. Um, and uh, yeah, I'm really pleased that we did it, but oh my God, was it ever like so much harder than I expected? <laughs> so much more time consuming and expensive too. <laughs> I, I, I love the new brand and I love the new website, love everything about it. So yeah, you did a fantastic job for sure. Can you walk us through um, like, Somebody who wants to work with you, what are the initial steps and, and how does that process work? Yeah, sure. So we, um, we have a submission form on our website. That's the easiest way. Anybody can fill it out and send us their material. Um, we look at them all within a day or two of receiving them. Um, and we will, you know, check the author out and see if we think that um, either their material and and they themselves are a good fit both thematically and also in terms of you know where they're at in their um, in their career or business and and whether we think that we're you know kind of well positioned to um, to help them get where they need to go based on what they tell us their goals are um, <clears throat> so from there um, if there's a manuscript or a book proposal we will look at those um, and if those materials seem strong and, you know, meet with our approval, um, then, uh, we'll typically schedule a meeting with me. Um, and, uh, and if the meeting, um, you know, kind of goes well and everybody wants to proceed to the next level, then I write a proposal to publish, which would contain the, uh, sort of steps and recommended, re recommended services that we would offer and provide, um, give them a kind of like a timeline and a process map. Um, and of course fees. And, um, and then we kind of just go from there. In terms of like how to approach us and with what to approach us, I think that the best place is, I love, I love, I love working with authors who, whose manuscript is a work in progress or just at the outlying stage. Um, we do take authors on sometimes who have a completed manuscript, but it almost always must go through a really deep developmental edit before it is ready to go through into the market. Um, and so, uh, I don't know, it's painful, you know, when you've put hundreds of hours of your life into writing um, a manuscript only to learn that, you know, 50% of it needs to be thrown out and rewritten from scratch. Um, that can, that can, that's a hard pill to swallow. We would rather that while the author is writing that we know the book that they're writing is one that we can sell. Um, and so we love doing conceptual development with authors. Um, if you come to us with, but, but it's, it's also helpful if they're not at completely at square one. We have worked with people that are completely at square one where they're like, I wanna write a book. I have a head full of knowledge. What do I do? You know, <laughs> uh, you know, it could be about this. It could be about that. It could be about that. It could be about that. And we can definitely help those people. You know, or those we'll pair them with an editor who'd be like, okay, what are your goals? What do you know? 
who do you want to help or share this with and kind of gradually get into the right zone of like, okay, write this book first and make it be about that and help them to do it that way. But it is helpful if they at least come with some sort of an idea of what they want to focus on, what they want to say. So I know we talked about distribution, but the book is written. What are some of the marketing activities that, you know, potentially you could help them out with or that they can do on their own? Yeah. So book marketing now is really author marketing. It really is about building that platform and having a connection to an audience that hears from you regularly and wants to hear from you regularly, whether that's through your email list or um, social media or your public writing, um, you know, television or YouTube or any other way that people are hearing from you. Um, and this is not a surprising statement. Everybody kind of knows this, right? Um, having said that, there are certain books that also really, it makes sense to do a PR campaign around, not all of them. Um, PR is a, is a really costly undertaking. It's, you know, it's just, it just is. Um, and, um, and it doesn't make sense to do it in every case, but where your book has any sort of news value or um, public interest, you know, um, consumer appeal, and it just kind of makes sense to do, you know, if, if we think that it will be successful in achieving media coverage, then that is still really, especially national media coverage, it's still the most powerful way to move the needle on sales, I think. Um, but you know, the platform building stuff is tough because it's a really long, slow burn. It's not something you can just turn on four months before your, your book comes out and then expect that to, um, you know, to work as a driver of sales. You need to be cultivating that relationship for the long haul. You need to be um, committing to your own um, uh, public visibility on an ongoing way, in an ongoing way. Um, and so we help with all of those things. What we include in all of our packages as standard is um, our marketing essentials, which is essentially consultation. It's essentially, what is your marketing plan gonna be? What are the levers that you have that we wanna pull? Um, what makes the most sense for this type of book and this type of author and this type of audience? And then from there, there are bolt-on services. We, you know, we have built, um, we have built certainly like book launch campaigns that run through email or through social media. We can do content marketing around the book's launch. Um, we have organized or helped to organize, you know, author events. And we have run full-scale national um, media outreach campaigns, uh, you know, getting our authors on TV, on radio. Um, certainly the podcast circuit is a big thing these days. Um, so any and all, but it's really not a one size fits all thing. The one thing that remains true basically across the board is, um, the better known the author is to the readers that matter to their book, um, then, uh, the, the more copies you'll sell period. <laughs> yeah, pretty, it's so simple yet so hard. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, it is, it's, it's not, I mean, I don't even know how hard it is, but it's not. It's not a small activity. It's kind of like, you know what, Joel? It's like working out. Like I go for a four mile walk every day. I live in the Hollywood Hills and I, I'm, I'm bragging. I don't go every day, but I go like almost every day. I go in the morning and, um, and I go up and down the stairs and I'm, you know, I was kind of zipping around in the fresh air and it doesn't feel hard at all. But 
I remember a time when I wasn't working out most days and it was hard. And the thought of where do I find the time? How do I get the energy? What if it's raining? What if I don't feel like it? You know, that's just a lot. And it felt hard, but once you're in a cadence with it, it's not at all hard. It's just part of life. And I think that you need to look at marketing yourself as an expert in the same way. Awesome. I'm going to cap it off with this question. And I realize it is a super stupid question to ask a publisher, <laughs> but sometimes it stimulates uh, interesting conversations. So I'm going to ask it anyways. We'll see what happens. And that's, um, and it's something that I ask all my guests. And that is, what is your favorite book or perhaps a, maybe something easier is, you know, a book that you like to gift a lot and I won't limit you to one book. And uh, yeah, it, it's not a stupid question. It's a great question, but I need a spreadsheet in order to answer it. So, and actually because, because I, I, I love books, I, I don't think I can narrow it down to one or even 10. It depends on the mood. It depends on the need. And there are some books that I, I read once 30 years ago and they had a profound impact on my life. Is that my favorite book? I haven't read it again since, you know? So I don't really know. It, uh, the way that I'd like to answer that is to tell you the book I'm reading now that I'm really enjoying. And then also to talk about categories of books that I like. So right now I'm reading How to Be an Anti-Racist by Ibram X. Kendi. And I'm really appreciating it. Um, and uh, and, and um, I'm just finding it super illuminating to understand um, you know, how we got to where we are, um, what the history of racism is in our culture, and how to be a force for change. Um, so I've been really enjoying that on so many levels. Um, I'm also a, um, I'm just a huge uh, self-help book reader. I read them all. <laughs> I have tons of nature. I just read them all. And I read a lot of business books too. So I will actually call out one business book in particular that has been super important to me in recent years. Um, and that's Traction by Gina Whitman. Hmm. Are you an EOS entrepreneur, Joel? Yeah. <laughs> okay. So, yeah, so we, we run our company on EOS and it has just been an absolute godsend. Um, and so that book, that book is, uh, is super important to me. Um, on a, in a completely different category, um, I would say, I, I mentioned earlier that I love to cook. I'm a really big food person. Um, and I think my favorite cookbook of all time is How to Eat by Nigella Lawson. Um, when she published that cookbook, the Guardian newspaper reviewed it and said, you will need two copies of this book, one for your kitchen and one for your nightstand, because it is that entertaining. And it really is. So, so there you go. Three very different books. <laughs> awesome. Well, Maggie, I appreciate the time. I appreciate you being on the podcast and um, just, yeah, you have so much wisdom and thank you so much for sharing. Uh, I, I know I personally learned a lot. I know my uh, listeners uh, will too. Um, for people who want to reach out and connect with you, um, who potentially want to hire you, uh, where's the best place to go? Yeah, great. So um, we thank you, Joel. First of all, it's great to meet you. Great to talk to you. I am super passionate about helping people to understand the publishing industry better, um, regardless of what method of publication is right for them. So, um, so thanks a lot for this opportunity to speak. Um, uh, you can definitely find us online at wonderwell.press. Um, and also we're Wonderwell. We are Wonderwell Press on Instagram and Twitter. Um, uh, as I mentioned earlier, there's um, a submission form that anybody can fill out if you want to just, you know, it doesn't 
obligate you to anything. You can just send us the details of your project and request a meeting um, by using our form online. Oh, thank you so much, Maggie. Thanks, Joel. Thank you for listening to Publishing for Profit. Please like and subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.